Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So about a year before we moved back to Santa Clara, this is when we were still at a church out in Pittsburgh, Uh, but the church I was the pastor at, we contracted with a church consulting company is what it was. And you see, the reason for that, uh, for the two years prior, we had started to see kind of an uptick in worship attendance. And so uh, we started having these conversations on council that in order to kind of build on that momentum and really grow as a church, that was like the goal. We really wanted to grow. Uh, It felt like we needed some sort of outside perspective to come in. Uh, So this company we contracted with, they do this all over the country. And what they do is they send out one of their consultants. He's essentially going to be on site for a long weekend. I think our guy was there for four, maybe five days total. Uh, During which, one of the things he did is he came to worship as a quote-unquote secret shopper. That's what it was. Uh, Which I didn't love the terminology. Side note. Um, However, uh, I thought it was a good idea, nonetheless. That was a really good idea, in fact. His goal in that was to actually find out what it's like to be a visitor at the church, which is good information to know. And so then later that day, he met with the council. He shared his experience. He also got their ideas, talked about the history of the church, hopes for the future, all of that. And then he also met with the staff that Monday morning. Kind of felt them out. A sense of passion for their work. What do you, where do you want to be in five years? Was one of his questions of the staff. And so all these questions, all of which were great, by the way. And at this point in the consulting like, relationship, I felt like things were going pretty well. And yet, <laughs> uh, what happened is we had a team of 10 members. Uh, this is non-staff, just members in the congregation, who had essentially been asked to partner with the pastors in developing a vision and then be the champions in the congregation of bringing that vision to fruition, okay? Uh, so the consultant gets with this team on a Monday night, and we go through these exercises together. And as we do, something begins to feel a little off. You see, it was two things in particular. The first is, we did this particular exercise that's called a buyer per, crafting a buyer persona, which if you're not familiar with that phrase, if you work in business, a buyer persona, what it is, it's something marketers use to try to get a good grasp on the customers they are targeting, uh, which maybe that sounds normal to you if you come from the business realm, but you see what that meant for us as a church was part of the ministry philosophy of this consulting company was in order to grow your church, you've got to narrow and you've got to pick exactly what kind of person you want to reach. In other words, Part of advice, don't even try to be intergenerational. That was our old vision statement. Don't try to be intergenerational. Young people don't like old people. Old people don't like young people. Was it? Oh, sorry, not, not my words. Yes. So don't try to be intergenerational. Don't try to be multi-ethnic. I'm like, oh my goodness, have you read the Bible? Uh, don't try to serve all demographics. If you want to grow, every good business knows this, guys. You've got to target your specific market. Uh, so we created a buyer persona. Zionite Zach is what we called him. Uh, We were Zion Lutheran Church, so Zionite Zach is what we called him. Uh, Which, by the way, Saddleback Church down in Orange County where Rick Warren is the pastor, their guy's name is Saddleback Sam. They do indeed have a specific target down there. Um, And it got leaked by one of their staff members, much to the rest of the people's chagrin, right? Um, And then the second issue, that's the first issue. We crafted this buyer persona. Not a big fan of that. Uh, Second issue, part of the consulting package was the pastor would get one-on-one coaching with the consultant. And you see, when we met together, uh, he was trying to convince me that my whole seminary education was wrong and that in order for our church to grow, right, in order for the church to grow, I needed to see myself not as a shepherd of souls, very old school, but instead as a marketer of ideas. And in fact, at one point in the conversation, he referred to me as the CMO of my church, the chief marketing officer, that is. And in that moment, I think I had like a combination of two feelings. On the one hand, I felt kind of flattered, like... Does this mean I get a raise, CMO? This is great. Um, on the other hand, I think I may have thrown up in my mouth a little bit. And he said, 
So if anyone suggests we hire a church consulting company here, you probably know where I'm going to land on that. Here's the thing about this. If you were with us last week, you kind of see the tie-in if you were with us last week. We started a two-part message on how the church grows. In particular, how does God grow his church? That's sort of the thrust of the book of Acts, that God grows the church. How does that happen? That's what we were looking at. And one of the things we talked about in contrast is what's called the seeker-sensitive model of doing church. And kind of the main thrust of the seeker-sensitive model is the way you're going to get growth is, first of all, with some really good marketing. Like public communications, you really got to focus on that, target your audience, get them in the door, and then once they're there, you give them a really good show. Polished performance, all of that, right? And the thing is, I felt like we hit that pretty hard last week. I don't want to beat a dead horse this morning. Like just, although, I do want to make sure it's dead, by the way. So, and I feel like there's breath in it. We're just going to, for the rest of the sermon, we're going to choke it out. <laughs> but really, the more helpful thing and the real reason I bring up the seeker-sensitive model um, is to contrast a lot of current thinking on how the church grows. This is infiltrated not just seeker-sensitive churches, but all churches. I want to contrast the current thinking on how churches grow with the picture that the book of Acts gives us, which is so different. See, one thing about the book of Acts is essentially a record of how the early church grew. And what I mean by that, just to be clear, it's not just how did the church grow numerically, although that's definitely part of it, but also how did individual Christians grow? Like, it's not just a quantitative question, it's also a qualitative question. How do we become deeper in our walk with the Lord? And the thing is, if you look at the passage or you go throughout the book of Acts as a whole, I think there are three main methods or means by which God gives his people growth. And what they are, I mentioned them last week, but it's wonders, words, and ways. Wonders, words, and ways. And what I mean by that, it's wonders that God works in and around his people's lives is the first thing. And that's what we looked at last week, so we're not going to delve into it. Uh, you can go back to it if you want. But the other one, so wonders, the other one is words, meaning God grows his people by actually speaking truth into their hearts and minds. So the second thing, we're going to look at that in a minute. Um, then finally, what creates, uh, what, what, what that creates, what the words create, is a way with which God's people carry themselves that is so different from the world that we live in, first of all, and then also very compelling to those who are tired of the world that they're in. And so wonders, words, and ways is how God grows this thing we call the church and grows us as individuals. Let's start, and we're going to go through words and ways. Let's start with words. And so one of the things you see throughout the book of Acts is actually the main way the Spirit moved in the early church was through words. If you take the wonders and the ways, those were merely supplemental to the preaching of the gospel. In other words, if I can put it differently, after the resurrection of Christ, the way that that resurrected reality, the way that that life of Christ himself began to work its way into other people's lives is through what's called the inspired word of God. I think it's maybe you've heard that phrase before, inspired word of God. And just to put it out there, what do you typically think or what comes to mind when you hear the phrase inspired word of God? Or what is it specifically that's inspired? Man, we got a lot of work, right? Like, <laughs> the Bible, right? It's the Bible. Maybe you're just hesitant to say we're Lutheran. We stay quiet in church. Um, <laughs> but it's the Bible, right? That's what typically comes to mind. Um, in fact, the scripture, which is right, by the way, it's totally right. Scripture actually refers to itself as being, quote unquote, inspired. Second Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. And so if I can just like, briefly explain what that means, to say that the Bible is inspired. Right, what the doctrine of inspiration is, is that the Spirit of God actually speaks in and through particular people. 
In other words, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, God does not communicate to us directly. Uh, For instance, early church, the beginning of the Christian movement, you go through the book of Acts, God did not go around just whispering into people's ears like, hey, guess what? Jesus is alive. I don't know why God would say guess what, but still, um, that's not how it went, right? Uh, Instead, what inspiration means is God so filled the heart and shaped the minds of particular people that their words actually became God's words. Another way to put that, God so anointed particular people and gifted them with particular gifts that in and through that anointing and that gifts, their words became vehicles through which the voice of God could be heard. And you see, that's what the Bible is. It's what the Bible is. It's the words of men. It's like, it is human authors of the Bible. It didn't just drop down to the sky. It's the words of men that are also the word of God. That's what it means to say something is inspired and the Bible is in fact inspired. And yet here's the thing. You go throughout the book of Acts, the way the church grew, it was not by handing out Bibles. The apostles were not the original Gideons. Put a Bible in your hotel room, right? Which, if you know anything about me, I'm not the kind of person to downplay or denigrate the importance of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. And yet when I say the main way that God grew his church and formed his people is through the quote-unquote inspired word of God, I do not mean the Bible. Per se. What I mean is what? What do you see in the book of Acts? Instead of handing out Bibles, they go out and they, they preach. And they teach. And they proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, it was an audible message that grew the early church and what grows individual Christians. And in fact, early church, they would actually be inclined to, uh, to apply the doctrine of inspiration, not just to the scriptures, but also to the preachers. To this phenomenon, that is, where God has, in fact, anointed particular people with the Spirit and given them a particular gift to use for the good of his people. And in, that, in and through that anointing and that gift, their words become vehicles through which you hear the voice of God. Which I think is amazing in so many ways. I do not doubt I have heard the voice of God through preachers. And yet, this whole method that God has set up, it also presents one very particular problem. Actually, uh, probably a bunch of problems associated with this, to be honest. I can think of about 45 off the top of my head, one of which is preachers who are neither anointed with the Spirit nor faithful to the Word. Kind of an issue, right? It's like, oh no, what do we do with that? I'm not going to jump into that, but we want to hone in on one particular issue that this sets up for us that I think is inherent uh, to the task of preaching in particular. Uh, So when I first got here, as a lot of you know this, uh, we had started on lockdown right as I got here. If you all remember the 15 days to slow the spread, I got here on day two. Which means, of course, 13 days later, I was free as a bird. Okay, no? Uh, So you see what that meant is for the vast majority of my first six or seven months here, I preached to that camera on that back wall. And then we would upload it to YouTube. And the thing about YouTube, it used to have a thumbs up and a thumbs down, right? They got rid of the thumbs down. They want to be more positive. Uh, But it used to have both. It used to have a thumbs up and a thumbs down. And you see what happened is after about a month and a half of being here, we got our first thumbs down. Which, I don't know. I took that kind of personally. (laughs) Like, I don't even know you guys. You're giving me a thumbs down? Like, thanks. Anyway, I got over it. It was just one thumbs down. And not a big deal. And yet what happened the very next week? 
We uploaded the video within an hour, boom, another thumbs down. A week later, upload the video, boom, another thumbs down. Week after that, boom, another thumbs down. Every single week, it was one thumbs down. And you see, it got me thinking about something. Namely, I want to go back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's not what I was thinking, not really. I wasn't all that bothered, to be honest. Uh, but you see, in particular, what it got me thinking about was an article that I had read about the effects that social media has had on us as a people. Um, one of the things this article said because of the, is because of the prevalence of the like and dislike buttons that is like prevalent on every social media platform, right? Uh, we tend to view all of life in those categories now. Meaning, do I like that? Do I not like that? Those used to be quite a bit more peripheral as questions. And yet what the studies show is the more time we spend on social media, the more those questions begin to dominate our thinking. And see, here's the issue with that when it comes to what we're talking about. When you read through the book of Acts in particular, even just the New Testament as a whole, you see this. One of the biggest reasons the people did not hear the voice of God in and through the preaching of the church is they were really focused on whether they liked the person or the presentation through whom God had chosen to speak. For instance, in the book of Acts, the apostles are thought to be too uneducated. People could not listen to them. So they missed the word of God because they didn't like the apostles. Uh, Second Corinthians, what they literally said about the apostle Paul, right? They said that while his letters were weighty and forceful, his personal presence and public speaking was unimpressive. About the apostle Paul, for goodness sakes. In the gospels, what they said about Jesus himself is that he was just, quote, Joseph and Mary's son. In other words, they knew him too well. It's like, I can't listen to that guy. I saw him grow up. My family's here today. <laughs> I can't listen to that guy. I saw him grow up. And so you see, whereas the doctrine of inspiration seems great at first glance. It seems great. Uh, the fact that God speaks to us in and through human mediums is great. Uh, the issue with that is the more, they, uh, the more we are focused on whether we do or do not like something, the less we're going to hear God himself speak to us. So here's the thing about this. At that church that I was at in Pittsburgh, our confirmation kids, uh, they would fill out sermon notes every week, which I think used to be a thing here. Confirmation kids, it's coming back. Like it's just this fall. Um, but we used to have them fill out sermon notes. Every, and what they were, they're just questions about the sermon to kind of help follow along. All right, one thing about the questions, they would run the theological gamut. We'd be all over the place. We'd try to make them fresh every week. And so over the course of like five or six years, you cover a lot of ground in that time. Uh, you develop this bank of like, a lot of variety of questions, and yet there was one question in particular we never asked. Do you know what it was? Did you like it? We literally never asked that. You see, because we didn't care. We didn't care. And more important than just we didn't care, the bigger thing is, in the end, it doesn't matter. Did it convict you? That matters. What in particular did it convict you of? That matters even more. Did it give you grace? That also matters. Did it soften your heart? That matters. Did it change your mind? That matters. Did it build up your faith? Did it set you free from some sort of false belief you came in with? All of that matters, right? But did you like it? It doesn't matter. And so you see, if we want the word of God to be living 
and active in us, what I want to suggest is the question on our minds when we come into worship or we hear preaching and teaching out there, um, the question on our minds should not be, did I like it or do I like this? But instead, is it true? Is it true? You see, because the word of God is truth. God himself is a revealer of truth. And so if we want to hear God in the midst of whatever preaching and teaching we're hearing, the posture of what, that we need is, I just want to hear the truth. And the truth is not always going to taste good. It's not always going to be presented well. And yet what Jesus says elsewhere, if you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. So who cares how it tastes? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, is what Christ says. Meaning, if you just set your heart on hearing the truth, you will hear him speak. So that's words. It's how God grows his church. Let's go to the last thing. So far, the way God builds his church is by wonders, it's by words, and now finally, it's by ways. What I mean by that is God's people have a particular way about them that actually helps facilitate faith in the gospel. So I'm going to try to draw that out. I went to seminary in Dubuque, Iowa, which is a small little, well, actually out in Iowa, it's it's a huge town, actually, 60,000 people. It's a big city. Um, But it was a small little town in my mind on the eastern border of Iowa um, on the Mississippi River. Anyway, um, one of the years I was there in Iowa, LCMC, which is our denomination as a church, they had their annual conference up in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. And so this is my second year of seminary. I decided to go. I get in my car, I drive up there, check into my hotel room, and as I walk into the conference, the two first people I see are Pastor Joe Campo, (laughs) Pastor Mike Matzik, (laughs) which if you're new to CLC, Pastor Joe and Pastor Mike were the pastors here for a really long time, right? Pastor Joe, 20-ish years, Pastor Mike, 12 years. And so we go to the opening session together, we kind of talk and we go to the open session together, and what happens is one of the speakers gets up like, the first speaker of the day, and the first thing he does, he goes, everyone in the room, maybe we'll try this today, right? Everyone in the room, I want you to turn to the person next to you, shake their hand, look them in the eye and say, hey, Jesus loves you and so do I. Pastor Joe turns and he looks at me and he goes, hey, this is why men don't go to church. So the thing about that, I was reading this article recently, and it was an interview with men who have stopped going to church. And one of the common themes they brought up is it always kind of felt to them like there was this expectation that all Christian men had to be the same. And this one guy in particular, what he said, he said, as a Christian man, it always felt like I had to be Mr. Rogers. I don't know about you, I got nothing against Mr. Rogers. Probably the nicest human being to ever walk the earth, right? And yet what this guy in the interview was getting it is often there can be kind of a caricature of what it means to be a Christian. Not just men, but also women face this. In fact, maybe particularly women face this. Christian kids face it as well. There's often some sort of caricature of what it is we're supposed to be like that for a lot of us is really tough to fit into. Now, here's the thing about it. Whenever you see people getting transformed in the Bible, you go to the scriptures, you see people getting transformed, they never just all turn into the same person. There's a Simpsons episode where they're playing a video game of conversion, where they're converting all the heathens, right? And they all turn into men and women wearing suits and ties, or the men with suits and ties and clean cut hair. It's like, no, that's not what it is. Right? 
It's not our goal. And in fact, rather than squashing people's personalities, conversion to Christ always seems to bring out who people really are. Their true self, that is. And you see, I think one of the most helpful, helpful thinkers on this front is a guy named Thomas Aquinas. And if you haven't heard of Thomas Aquinas from before he was alive in the 1200s, just one of the most brilliant Christian minds who's ever lived. Um, and maybe one of his most famous teaching that he really just took from the Bible, he just pulled it straight from it. Uh, he, used to, he used to say this one thing all the time. And he used to say, quote, grace does not destroy your nature, but perfects it. Grace does not destroy your nature, but perfects it. And what he meant by that is when you come to faith, meaning God gives you grace, fills you with the spirit, gives you a new heart, that's not gonna undo who you really are. It's not gonna eradicate your personality. It's not gonna turn you into someone you're not. Instead, it's gonna bring out your true self is what that means. God does not destroy, grace does not destroy your nature, but perfects it. So just to give two concrete examples of this from scripture itself. On today's passage, we see Peter, right, in particular. The thing about Peter throughout the gospels, he was always kind of a natural born leader, you could say about him, you see it. Uh, The disciples all kind of look up to him, they follow him, he's the first to realize who Jesus is, that he's the Christ. Jesus Jesus himself puts Peter in a leadership position, right? And so the guy is a natural leader. And yet you go through the gospels and for the longest time, Peter's potential for influence is totally hindered or held back. You see, what it is that's holding Peter back, it's sin in particular, right? Sin always holds back who we really are. I was talking to the confirmation kids the other night, like sin does not actually release your true person. It actually destroys, it takes it away. But the particular sin that Peter has is he cares way too much what other people think. That's his issue. Truth be told, he's just kind of a people pleaser, telling everyone exactly what they want to hear. You think about the trial of Christ. Do you know him? He's like, I, I don't know. What, what do you want to hear? Like, no? Okay, no, I don't know. Like, it's like, really? This is our leader? <laughs> the other disciples are thinking that. And so whereas, yeah, he might be a natural leader, he's also held back by his own woundedness, weakness, and worry. But you see, here's what happens. Post-resurrection, Christ gives Peter this particular grace. We're gonna be actually in this passage next week. So when Christ comes to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you, he says it three times, right? And what he's doing in that instance, he's restoring Peter to his grace. The thing is, you go to today's passage, this is after getting that grace, and what does Peter say? Now, talking to pretty much the same people that he had denied Christ to, And yet this time, what does he do? He stands right up to their face and he says, we must obey God rather than men. And it's like, where did that come from? (laughs) That's not who he was like five minutes ago. Yeah, I would argue it was always there. It was always kind of there. He's a natural leader. It's just that now he's not held back and hindered by sin anymore, not held back and hindered by people pleasing anymore. In other words, Peter's true self has been set free from that. You see, because grace does not destroy your nature, but what? Perfects it, perfects it, brings it out. Another example, the Apostle Paul, we'll finish with this one, probably one of the most passionate people ever, right? Paul was passionate. The problem with that being at a particular point, his passion was for destroying us. 
the gospel, the movement of the church, right? That was his passion. In fact, at the beginning of Acts, he's literally killing Christians, doing anything possible to stop the advancement of the gospel. And yet what, hap- what happens when Christ converts him? For instance, does Christ say, okay, Paul, no more passion. We Christians are a laid back people. We gotta actually like learn to relax, calm down. No, it's not at all what happens. Paul is just as full of fire as before, if not even more so now after his conversion. He is combative, he's argumentative, he's essentially the anti-Mr. Rogers, right? It's just now, instead of opposing Christ and Christians, his passion is for advancing God's grace and glory. Which means becoming a Christian did not destroy Paul's personality, it just redeemed it, put it to use. You see, because grace does not destroy your nature. It what? It perfects it, brings it out. And so if you think about yourself, you apply this to yourself, how God has made you, your particular personality, your specific gifts, how your life experience has shaped you, what your heart deep down is really like, you take all of that. It has never been God's plan to take that and erase it. It has always been his plan to take that and redeem it. To use it for his name and his glory. And so if you've ever heard the quote from Irenaeus that kind of gets at this, that's a second century Christianity, Irenaeus. He used to say that the glory of God is man fully alive. In other words, it's not just a bunch of nice guys. It's not what gives God glory and grows the church. Although if you're a nice guy, no, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. You can, that can stay too, right? Like Mr. Rogers doesn't have to be like Paul anymore. Um, however, that's not what grows the church. It's just a bunch of nice guys. It's also not just a bunch of demure women. Like, I don't know what I think. What do you think? Like, no, that might be the stereotype. But that's not the picture we see in the Bible. Instead, it's men and women fully themselves, kids as well, men, women, and children, fully themselves, fully alive, full of Jesus. Who once, one last time, he is not the destroyer of our nature, but the perfecter of it. Uh, So just to loop back real quick to the beginning, to that seeker-sensitive movement. I mentioned last week that a guy named Bill Hybels was the founding father of this movement. He's the pastor at a place called Willow Creek. It's this huge church in the Chicago area. And you see the way that he grew that church is he sent out by what's called, or what they called a customer poll. Just telling, right? They sent out a customer poll. What it was, it was a series of questions they'd sent out to pretty much everyone in their community. And what it was essentially asking is, what kind of church do you want us to be? Like, what would you come to? We will be whatever you want us to be. Was it the underlying implication? They didn't put it that lame of a way. Um, but that was the implication. I don't want to knock them too hard. Being a pastor is not all that easy, except for the one day a week working thing, which is pretty sweet. Uh, but still, the thing about that approach, it worked for a little bit. Uh, it was successful in the 1990s in particular, typically in suburban, middle-class, white neighborhoods. But you see, it's had a really tough time reaching millennials and maybe even more so Gen Z, younger generations. And the reason for that is you actually read interviews with them is they say it does not feel authentic. They can see through the charade. 
Like if you're just kind of pretending to be someone you're not in order to get me to buy something you're selling, I don't want it. And yet, contrast that with what we see in our passage. One thing you see in our passage, the early Christian, there was nothing inauthentic about them. There was no pandering to the world around them. Much less was there any pretending to be someone they were not. Truth be told, they could not care less what other people thought. And you see, in a world where human opinion tries to be the be-all and end-all of our lives, that attitude of the early Christians was and always will be really attractive to people who are tired of the game. We must obey God rather than men, is what Peter said. Will you say that with me? We must obey God rather than men. Say it one more time. We must obey God rather than men. I pray that you make that your mantra this week. It is the word of God. It's living and active. Watch attentively for wonders. Wade deeply into God's word. Walk in a way that is authentically you. And just see whether the spirit doesn't move a little more freely. Let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and his grace. Father, we pray that we would think rightly about grace, that we would hear your voice in and through these mediums that you yourself have set up and that your word would actually become living and active in the lives of your people. Help us to be bold and free in our witness Uh, to not care what people think, but only to care what you think, Lord God. We pray for that attitude. Uh, Fill us with your own spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.